You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm coming to you from London, as usual. And my guest this week is uh, Scott Barry Kaufman, who is a humanistic psychologist. Uh, he's an expert on intelligence, creativity, and well-being. And I'm going to talk to him about his new book, Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization. So it's it, it has been a couple of months since I read the book, and I actually listened to it on audiobook, which I strongly recommend in your sort of uh, hypnotic, calm and hypnotic voice. And it's, it's, it's not a self-help book. It's really a, I would say that it's an annotated uh, biography of Maslow. Uh, of Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, um, who we all know from the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the pyramid, which we'll get into a mo- into a moment, in a moment. And um, you go through um, in three sections. You have a section on more or less basic needs, and then a section on growth um, need growth possibilities, and then you get into the idea of peak experiences and transcendence. And then there's a kind of twist in the end. (laughs) There's a Um, twist, yes. Perhaps the best place to begin is um, with the the pyramid itself. So there's a misconception about Maslow's idea of of needs, because Maslow himself never drew a pyramid, did he? No, I couldn't find a pyramid anywhere in any of his writings. And I even heard from one of his former students that he uh, once was looking at a uh, the, the pyramid on the back of a, of, of, of a, is it the dollar bill. I think there's a pyramid on the back. And he was looking at it in a restaurant once and saying, oh, I hate that goddamn pyramid. So there, there you go. I always try to add in all my interviews. I try to add a, a little n- extra nugget, a special nugget, just for the interviewer. Um, so I haven't told that story, I think, on any other podcast. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, it's always when it always strikes me that you guys have "In God We Trust" on your money, whereas we have, or we used to have until recently, a picture of Charles Darwin. Oh yes, that's very interesting. Well, that's not a uh, that that would be very divisive to the United States if that was the <laughs> if, if we had that on there. So, what's wrong with the pyramid scheme, and why have <laughs> you opted for this this um, this other metaphor of the sailboat? It's funny you said pyramid scheme. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it does feel a bit. It's a like different a story. Scheme. 
There's a lot wrong with pyramid schemes. <laughs> they never work out in the end. It's, <laughs> but um, honesty is the best way to go. But you, um, well, what what is really wrong with depicting human life as a pyramid is that we don't ascend in some sort of video game-like way um, to higher levels and then our lower levels no no longer matter to us. You know, human life is really this experience where we um, have multiple evolutionary psychologists would call them modules, but we have multiple selves. You know, we have multiple aspects of ourself. That's another way, that's maybe how I would frame it. Uh, that in one moment we could just enjoy hedonistic pursuits and just 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 love the heck out of that greasy pizza and then in the next moment we're helping an old lady cross the street <laughs> you know we're we're these we're these complicated beings with so many different um complex uh aspects some of them more contradictory than others and the project I, I'm really working on and why I really like um, digging deep into Maslow's writings and the writings of humanistic psychology is because at the end of the day, they were really interested in in, in wholeness and in, in, in understanding the whole person, understanding how we can integrate all of these warring factions within ourselves. Mm. So tell us about the sailboat. The sailboat is a new metaphor I have for life uh, that uh, and for human needs that emphasizes the point that we have to have the boat in some way stable or else we can't go anywhere. So we have, it is important to have our basic needs met. And so many of us, if it's been so long without those basic needs unmet, we may not really understand or comprehend why are these people with their basic needs unmet? Why are they so loud? Why are they so, you know, yelling all the time? And I, and, and it's very easy to forget what it feels like to have your unmet needs met, but all it takes is one day of you being hungry and then you snap right back into place and you remember what that feels like. So I think just, you know, life is just this constant um, uh, two-step forward, one-step back dynamic where uh, we try to fix the boat and be as secure and stable as possible um, so you feel like we're on uh, some firm ground. But we also want to move in a direction. We want to open up our sails and we want to uh, face the uh, the unknown of the sea, even despite our, our values, uh, sorry, even despite the uh, waves, uh, the potential for waves, we want to hold steadfast to our values. And ultimately that's, that's what life is all about. You know, we, the, the only certainty is uncertainty as Alan Watts said, and, uh, and having that understanding and really deeply embedding that appreciation for the inevitability of, of the unknown into your uh, self and, uh, and your, your spirit of exploration is, is really important. And, you know, I, I think the sailboat metaphor works in a lot of different ways. Uh, you also can look at it in the sense that we're all going in our own direction, but we're all ultimately in the sea together. You know, I, I when I did this illustration, uh, when my uh, actually the designer Andy Ogden did the illustration of the sailboat for my book, and I told him to put in the put in other boats in the picture, 
you know, with the pyramid, is right? I mean, with the pyramid, you have just like the static. There's so many things annoying about that pyramid, um, the way it's been depicted, and the way Maslow never meant it for it to be it to be depicted. But as this sort of static, just thing that just sits there, um, and there's no other pyramids in, at all anywhere else. It's just self-actualization is just this individualistic pursuit. I don't blame those who have misconstrued Maslow's idea of self-actualization as though he was arguing it's this wholly selfish, individualistic pursuit of, of power and um, wealth and, uh, and success. Uh, I don't blame them because of the way it's been misrepresented, but that's really not the spirit that Maslow had. And I think the sailboat kind of infuses that spirit um, of uh, humanitarian um, uh, sort of connectedness to the world, as well as a development, a deep development of oneself. I view them as not odds with each other, but at higher levels of consciousness. Um, I said I said the word levels. I try to stay away from saying the word levels, but at higher states of consciousness, uh, self, our self, and the world is uh, is integrated. They're not viewed as this false dichotomy that you're either selfish or you're altruistic. Um, the kind of state I'm trying to get people to in my book is a a real fusion of Eastern and Western uh, philosophical notions of self-actualization where we we realize that there's a point in which um, that dichotomy breaks down and what is good for you is good for the world. Enlightened self-interest on a kind of grand scale. Yes. (laughs) I like that. I like that phrase. Is that an an Anne Rand phrase? Who, Who said that? Oh my God. Please don't mention that name on this podcast. (laughs) I know. Um, I'm wondering who said that phrase, though. (laughs) Enlightened self-interest. I don't know where that comes from, you know, but I I use it all the time. Mm. Um, Okay, I'm going to credit it to you. um, I live with with four men, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows. (laughs) I live with four old friends from college. They are my kind of quote-unquote family. We've known each other for like 30 years. And two oh. of them are a couple. And uh, whenever one of them is doing a favor for the other, I always say it's enlightened self-interest because happy wife, happy life. <laughs> that is my day-to-day. So I use this phrase almost daily. <laughs> uh, unhappy wife, very unhappy life as well. Indeed. Yes, yes the inverse um, is true as well, yes. And I can't resist telling you, although I don't want to hijack this podcast, but I can't Please resist do. telling you that I also used a sailboat metaphor um, before before you did this. Well, I think this was before, <laughs> certainly before your book came out. Wonderful. Um, and when I was reviewing Darren Brown's book, uh, Happy on Stoicism, and um, I'm going to uh, read you this passage. A frequent misinterpretation of Stoicism is that it is cold and unfeeling. The Stoics often encourage us to imagine what it would be like to lose our loved ones so that we can develop the strength to deal with that loss with equanimity. To regard this as callousness is a misunderstanding of human psychology. Commitment phobia and avoidance of intimacy are often symptoms of fear, of a reluctance to invest emotionally because it leaves us vulnerable to hurt. Stoicism provides a kind of mental training which arms us with a reassurance that we will be saddened but not destroyed by loss. 
It is, here, here we go. It is a workout that builds emotional strength, a caulking of the timbers to enable us to weather the coming storms, a preparation we make precisely because the ocean voyage is so rewarding. Wow. Did, you write, did you write that? Yes. <laughs> very poetic. It's very poetic and it's framing and it's freezing. Um, Thank you. You see, all the most brilliant people come up with this metaphor, clearly. Yes, yes, um, clearly. It's obviously the case. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I, I certainly hope you don't think I stole this metaphor from you. <laughs> um, I, well, uh, can I can I get royalties if I? <laughs> I had <laughs> no I idea. <laughs> I genuinely had no idea. I think it's uh, beautiful uh, the way you framed that, and um, I think that you know, in a lot of ways, the truth. Uh, is something that multiple people. If, if it's really true, multiple people are going to are going to put their their uh, their finger on it. This is what you find in terms of multiples and uh, uh, great scientific discoveries. You find uh, Dean, Dean Simonton has done some great research on this, showing the psychology of multiples and people who have very independent labs who don't even know of each other's work. They discover the same exact thing, and um, and then some of some people will be like. Oh well, we found it first. No, we found, it, and they all kind of fight over that when it's, you know, it was in the air for the picking, you know, the truth. Uh, that's that's the beautiful thing about truth. I so um, having said that, um, one thing that I kept thinking about as I was going through the book, and I know that you um, you try to get away from this idea that once you fulfill the more basic needs at the base of the fictitious pyramid, which never actually existed in Maslow's mind. Um, once you fulfill the basic needs, um, you can get on to dealing with the higher needs. And I know that you keep trying to get away from that. But one thing you don't mention is that in a lot of spiritual tra uh, traditions, where people are actually directly seeking a, a peak experiences, as Maslow calls them, um, a, a kind of transcendental experience, they will deliberately rob themselves of the, they will deliberately deprive themselves of the basic mm. needs. So they will fast and um, very often they will, um, there are a lot of mendicant, um, mm. uh, what's the word, peripatetic mendicant orders. Um, I, I was I'm thinking of people like so for example in the Jain tradition I think they are the most extreme in their asceticism you give away all of your wealth and you're separated from the rest of your family men go one way women another um, the men go naked sky clad they don't wash and they are sounds sensible they, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> You have all your hair pulled out, so they don't even shave their skulls like Buddhists do, but the hairs are pulled out one by one. And then you walk around with a begging bowl um, and you you graze. So, And you're not allowed to directly beg either. You have to just turn up and hope. Obviously, you go to where there are other Janes, and you probably do this in the tropics where it's a little warmer, but you just hope that people will give food to you. So you're really um, uh, robbing yourselves of, of all those basic needs. And 
the idea is precisely that is is precisely to go straight to the transcendent thing, and that seems to contradict this idea that sure first the basic needs need to be uh, fulfilled. Yeah, it takes my whole theory, and it uh, it says it's rubbish. <laughs> yeah, if, if you if you live by those principles, you are you're right. There is a direct conflict there between that life philosophy and the life philosophy I present in my book. And um, you're right. And you know, there's first of all, I want to say that my project of self actualization is not to tell anyone how they should live their life. I'm not a guru. I'm not. Uh, Thank uh, God. Yes, yes. I don't claim to be. I I'm a scientist. I am. Uh, intellectual dare i say now that sounds a bit pretentious to say that but i i think that, that you know it's true that's uh, I, I love ideas i love playing with ideas and multiple perspectives and and um and and just diving deep into someone else's perspective this book as i make really clearly my book is that i really want you to be able to find the life that works best for you find the uh, lifestyle and the um the framework that works best for you in your life, um, th these individuals that you're, you're mentioning, uh, maybe they're self-actualizing in, in the way that works best for their own temperament, uh, cultural situation. Um, what if it may, it might feel most comfortable to them because of the way they were maybe raised in a certain way. Uh, who knows all the all the different things. Now, now if we talk to those individuals and they and they they kind of like please help save us. <laughs> you know, like, like, like if we actually like got a chance to talk to some of them and, and they said to us things like, you know, we're in a cult, we're trapped. Well, then it's a different story. Then mm, mm. I want to help those people. Right. Because, but I'll take it a good faith that they genuinely, um, uh, it's bringing them transcendence in their lives, um, by doing what, what, what they're doing. Uh, so taking that in good faith, you know, I think that that that's 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 cool. Um, good for them. Um, you know, we we can think this through in a way that um, in 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 an intellectual way, as Abraham Maslow did in an unpublished essay. Here, I'm going to give you another nugget. I never told anyone. I don't think in any podcast. He wrote an essay I discovered called "Can Monks Be Self-Actualizing?" Mm. And he concludes they can't <laughs> uh, yeah, go Maslow uh, just drop in the call <laughs> drop in the comment the th here's the thing I love about Maslow I just want to say because I um I, I resonate so deeply with with Ma like I feel like we would have been like bestest of friends now now I could be wrong maybe he, maybe he wouldn't have liked me but I like to think in my head that if we met we would have been best of friends and when I talk to some of people who's who knew him you know, um, like Michael Murphy from Esalon I had uh, lunch with and he, he said, you know, I think Maslow would have liked you, Scott. So that, that made me feel good, right? Here's the thing I, I think I share with Maslow and Maslow was very direct and he didn't like bullshit. Uh, he didn't like, you know, he was very, very direct, but he was also very caring about wanting the world, want, wanting the people, wanting people to be able to realize their full potential. And we can talk about when the world that even means, but, uh, but he was, he was a straight shooter. Um, and in this article, this essay, he, he argued from his viewpoint that monks really, you know, it, it sounds all well and good to, to, uh, to become enlightened on a mountain, but you're still just dis deeply disconnected from the rest of humanity. 
And he really, he actually really thought self-actualization and transcendence required this synergy with the world. And so he didn't think monks were, were terribly self-actualizing. I have to say that people who I've met who are very interested in that kind of spiritual self-improvement, um, I've always found them to be assholes. Um. <laughs> well, here's what I would say, and um, I've had experience with a lot of them as well. I would not say that I, I think that in general they're assholes, but I would say they seem a bit zombie-like. <laughs> So my mm, yes. point is they don't yes. seem connected to mm, mm. people. They seem mm. actually quite the opposite. There's kind of a, gl- a glossy look in their eyes. I don't know if you've noticed that as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this, I, I'm just describing my own personal experience, and I'm sure this is, well, this is inevitably going to piss off, you know, those people who, if they're listening to this podcast. And uh, um, again, no disrespect if that's how you choose to live your life, but, you know, we're, we're certainly allowed to intellectually discuss them. Just like they're free to intellectually discuss us. Maybe they don't like people who aren't like them. Although I think that they probably, they would say they cultivate universal love. So That was one of my major issues throughout the book, actually, is that everything you asserted about qualities that were good, I could kind of see how a lack of those qualities would could also be good. Maybe that's a very, very um, generalized statement. Um, but maybe we can begin to get into this by thinking about the B realm versus the the D realm versus the B realm. Sure. Did you um, did you did you dislike the book in general? Uh, no, I was quite enchanted by the book. I think that my favorite parts. I um I must confess my favorite parts of the book were the quotations from Maslow and anecdotes about Maslow. Um, and I kind of fell in love with Maslow whilst I was uh, listening. And I did find some of the book uh, was very general. And I know that you had a lot more detailed information in footnotes. So there were times when I felt that it kind of lapsed into truism. Um, And um, In what way? Truism? Well, I would say, for example, to say that it's good to be open to experience and to to have the kind of security and courage to explore things uh, for their for their own sake. Yeah. So that is some that's something that you highlight in the book, but it's I feel as though it's something I, I obviously already knew coming into the book and mm. was kind of expecting you to say. So there are quite a lot of moments like that, but mm. I think that, there are also enough things that are um, interesting and surprising, and it's all just um, it's. And I I love the biographical part of it. Um, I love this kind of reinterpretation of Maslow, his life, and I was crying when he died. Me too. <laughs> that, Me too. That part just before he died. Um, but so tell me. Tell me for listeners about the, um, give me your take, and then I'll give you my take, what I got from the book when I was reading it, about the the differences between the, the D realm, which is the deficiency realm, and the B realm, the being realm. Yeah, deficiency realm is when everything is motivated by severe deficiencies, by uh, wanting to fulfill something that a gap 
that you have within yourself. So that's what you're motivated by. But we don't always have to be in that state. And, and, and when you're in that state, it, it does narrow us. It narrows our, our world. It narrows our perceptions. Everything becomes that which we seek. And we attempt to control others so that they conform to help us with that need. You know, as, I, as I've said before, you know, when you're chronically hungry, every one looks like a hamburger to you. Mm. Um, uh, yum, 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 yum. <laughs> uh, when you're uh, when you're chronically um, sad uh, and uh, lonely, um, you desperately want friends. You desperately want a hug, and 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 unfortunately, that often creates a cycle where people will be less likely to want to hug you. Mm. It's it's mm. a tragedy of, mm. but it's a it's a reality as well uh the most needy people are the ones that often um get shunned the most and mm. the least needy are those who appear to be cool tend to be the ones that um uh, everyone wants to be friends with mm, i mean there's cool and there's also just a kind of a kind of quiet calm energy which one Completely. can also radiate um, Which you have. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Is that I harmony? think I think you do. You have a great, a great. I like the tonality of your voice, by the way. It's really, um, it's really mellifluous. Um, I have the worst personality from a psychological standpoint. Um, I have done the ocean test, and I'm and I have a my own psychologist. I'm in therapy. Mm. Um, and I am a very anxious, very disagreeable extrovert. Hmm. You know, that's really, um, really, a really interesting uh, combination on the big five. Um, yeah, I scored above 90% in <laughs> neuroticism and, um, um, and disagreeableness. And I uh, and I scored very pretty high in extroversion, about uh, eighty or eighty-five. I I think it's uh, such a fascinating. Um, it makes you very unique, you know, within the personality space, because extroversion in the general population is positively correlated with warmth and um, and agreeableness um, to a certain degree, um, particularly the positive emotions aspect of extroversion. That aspect, um, so that puts you in a, a different space than the general population. Yes, I was listening to your interview with Sam Harris, and did you like at it? At one point, you were. Um, no. <laughs> I'm not surprised based on <laughs> being a disagreeable um, extrovert. <laughs> yeah. Um I felt that uh, um I'm and I'm doing it myself. So clearly I don't like looking in the mirror because I felt mm. that Sam just hijacked mm. the interview to talk about what he what the things that he is interested in. And I actually didn't see any evidence that he'd read your book, not from the interview itself. Um, so I was quite well. The frustrated more important question is: Did you like some of the things I said? <laughs> I did, but I felt as though um, I think that he spoke for about two thirds of the time, um, and I felt that he kind of squashed you. 
Um, that that was my my feeling. Well, I I really appreciate your feedback, uh, and of course I wanted your honesty. So yeah, I really appreciate your feedback. Uh, I enjoyed that whole experience of being on a show. I really enjoyed it, and and I did ask him for his thoughts at multiple points, and I think that he maybe saw that as an opportunity to, because um, we'd never really talked before. So mm. I think that you know he probably saw that as a great opportunity to to really fully dig in. I, I think maybe he even got excited to, to, to be able to go in depth on, on some of these questions that are very passionate to him. You could tell he's very passionate about these topics too. Yeah. So yes. Um, I didn't mind it. I, I, I hear what you're saying and um, I appreciate your feedback. Um, I certainly, I personally loved, loved the experience and, um, and just love in depth conversations in general. I'm going. I'm going to digress um, sure. for a second. Despite having said I wouldn't digress, I'm going to digress. <laughs> sure. Um, because so one thing that you you said at one point there is you were talking about agreeableness, and you said it's like uh, you you equated it to being a good person, <laughs> which I thought was very interesting because I think di- disagreeableness is very extremely uh, extremely valuable trait. Um, because it uh, people who are more disagreeable are more likely to you're more likely to get a straight answer out of them and an accurate reflection of things mm. very often. Um, whereas agreeable people frequently tell you what you want to hear. Do you remember what I said? Because I certainly didn't say that agreeableness makes is it might have been it might have been Sam who said that, and you just sort of mm-hmm to it. Um, I, I I'll find it later. And, yeah, I really um, don't. I don't. I don't think I would have now. ever said that. Um, I, yeah, I'm just very curious what the what what the context behind that was. So please drop me a, a message <laughs> later and remind me about that. I well, I've done research on uh, the light versus dark triad, and I have I have gone to great pains to uh, distinguish between. Uh, mere disagreeableness and dark triad. Um, I've, I've, in my, even in my book, I, I try to make that clear. One can be low in agreeableness, but that doesn't mean that they are high in exploitativeness and uh, mm. and uh, manipulation. Um, so I've tried to um, do a different research program to to move beyond the agreeable disagreeableness dimension of the Big Five. Um, so I don't know if that helps clarify at all. Yes. I wonder whether, have you read Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, um, series, his sci-fi trilogy about Mars? It's called no, Red but that Mars, sounds Green amazing. Mars, Green Mars. <laughs> no, um, sounds great. <laughs> they're fantastic. But um, uh, so I'm, I apologize for digressing all over the place here. But uh, um, Robinson um, has the psychologist um, decides that there are two kind of uh, um, there are two strong axes of of human personality, mm-hmm. and one is extroversion, introversion, and the other one is, I think he calls it the stable labile mm-hmm. dimension. Um, and it's it's fairly it's actually fairly well cor- correlated with agreeableness and disagreeableness. Agreeableness is more stable. Disagreeableness is more inherently unstable because it tends to lead to conflict. 
and um, he he starts making a kind of chart and trying to come up with a theory of human personality. And in the end, he just he realizes uh, he 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 puts in four quadrants: agreeable and stable and extroverted, and uh, you know between stable and labile and um, extroverted and introverted, you have four combinations. And then suddenly he realizes he's just reinvented the four humors. So the stable, the stable, agreeable extrovert is genial, and the labile, disagreeable extrovert is choleric, and the stable, agreeable introvert is phlegmatic, and the un the labile, disagreeable introvert is melancholic. <laughs> interesting. That's that's interesting. Yeah, it's um, conceptually seems related to a certain degree. I don't know how empirically valid um, this is, <laughs> but because I don't uh, know either. because uh, I'll tell you what actual facts show um, the all the dimensions of human personality can actually be classified into two meta traits, stability and plasticity. And stability incorporates the domains of extroversion, uh, emotional stability, which is the opposite of neuroticism and conscientiousness. Uh, sorry, not, I, I totally, I did not get that correct. Sorry. Stability encompasses emotional stability um, conscientiousness, um, plasticity encompasses extroversion and openness to new experiences. And because you do tend to find that dopamine is uh, a common theme running through both extroversion and openness to experience, whereas serotonin is more relevant to the stability dimension of personality, conscientiousness and emotional stability. Yeah, I think this this may have been on your Sean Carroll interview. I I remember you saying that this the kind of popular idea of introversion versus extroversion is that introverts need to rest and recharge their batteries after talking to people. Um, but you know, I'm very extroverted, and I also need to rest and recharge my batteries. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course, we had, all do. We all do yeah. at some point. Yeah. No one has sort of infinite That's energy. Right. That's right. Um, and you said it's much more to do with whether whether you're having high whether you have higher levels of dopamine in response to the social situation or not. Is that accurate? Yeah, a lot of people have that metaphor of the the recharging of the batteries. Extra introverts need to recharge their batteries after talking to a human, <laughs> whereas extroverts. Um, recharge their batteries by talking to humans. That's been kind of the model that's, that floats around the internet. But if you think about it from a dopamine perspective, well, they're half, right? They're, 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 they're somewhat, right? I don't know exactly the exact proportion. But you can think of it in, in the sense that dopamine gives us uh, our threshold. Um, it, 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 it kind of constrains our threshold for the extent to which we will want to uh, naturally get feel reward from so, social rewards. We're talking about social rewards in particular, and there are a lot of rewards throughout the course of human evolution um, that were social rewards, um, like the potential for mating 
from meeting someone, the potential for social status, from meeting, there's lots of potential rewards you can get from so, the social domain. Extroverts tend to, their dopamine, you know, crosses the synapses, gets, gets really excited metaphorically um, by those social rewards. Whereas introverts just don't, it doesn't light up their brain as much, those possibilities. Now, it's not saying introverts don't like mating or introverts don't like social status or all the rewards that come with it, but it's, they're not as sensitive to the reward value of social information. That's, I think that's the most accurate um, science of, of the introvert-extroversion uh, way of thinking about it. They had to work harder to get the, the same uh, excitement um, uh, from it, whereas extroverts are so, sort of just more naturally excited about those rewards from the social uh, environment. That, that's a lovely. I, I, I like that hypothesis it's also much more, better. more true than the what floats around the internet so i i get, i suspect you're the type of person <laughs> yeah i suspect you're the type of person that um is disagreeable by the way i i i appreciate you and i um i love talking to people who have different maybe different personality constitutions than me it uh, i find i find it fascinating so I, I appreciate that about you but i i suspect you're the type of person that even if you're you're disagreeable you Still, when something rings true to you, it rings true to you. I mean, you're not disagreeable just for the sake of being disagreeable. I, I, I don't get that sense. You're not going to be a contrarian just because you just enjoy saying no, no, no to everyone. Um, if something rings true no, to you, I, I suspect, am I right? Yeah. Yes. In fact, I hate, I mean, I, I, I hate conflict. This is why I have the, just the worst <laughs> personality type ever. <laughs> I'm, I'm really anxious and nervous person. I hate conflict, but I just feel this absolute compulsion um, to, <laughs> um, to say what I think and to correct uh, people if I think they're wrong and things like that, even yeah. when I know it's not going to go down well. It's not going to bring me any benefit whatsoever. Mm. Uh, it's definitely Social not benefit. manipulative <laughs> in any dark triad sense. If I were yeah, right. manipulative, I would try to be a lot more charming. Right, right, it's, right, right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't have autism or any excuse like that. I have a perfectly good theory of mind. I know it's <laughs> annoying, but I just... Well, it's not annoying. I, you, I this, this is a safe space for your disagree. <laughs> this is a safe space for your disagreeableness. <laughs> Oh my God, you're just like my shrink. I can I can tell you're a psychologist. It's just kind of endless positive reinforcement so that you feel safe and then you reveal thing, things that you wouldn't otherwise reveal. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, so I want to return to the B and D realms. So the... Um, the B. Let's let's take um, let's yeah. take B and D realm. I didn't um, even I didn't even get I didn't take, even explain what the B realm is. Yes, let's have your explanation first. What is? I was I was talking it, about the D realm, but I never realm. got to the B realm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the usual story, isn't it? We're mired in the D realm forever. That's <laughs> the story of my. Well, the B realm is 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 a is like a breath of fresh air. You're seeing with a queer lens for the first time um, when you were seeing life with a very clouded lens you are motivated by growth and integration and exploration and and also you you really see things as they are and not 
only the extent to which you can manipulate them for your own um, deficiencies. You can, Maslow referred to the to love. There's a B flavor to love. There's also a D flavor to love or D flavor to belonging. But at B love, the B love level, you know, we we have love for the being of others. Uh, we admire, we can admire others even if they're not helping us further our career and or further us in some way, even in, from an extroversion sort of social reward sort of way. We can have a, a B love, but in this framework, which I think is a profound framework for seeing life, is everything has a B and a D flavor. And I don't think anything is good and bad by itself. Uh, you wouldn't know it from a lot of the uh, very simplistic narratives that people have in our society right now um, that makes such stark contrast between that is good, that is bad. But I think, you know, there's a B and D flavor to antagonism. B and D flavor to, to, to violence, perhaps. A B or D flavor to humor. A B or D flavor to love, as I already mentioned. B or D flavor to authenticity. Um, I talk about D authenticity versus B authenticity in my book. You can actually start going down the line and picking out anything in life and realizing that at a higher, at a higher state of consciousness, uh, we, can, we can really transcend uh, false dichotomies. Maslow called them dichotomy transcendence. Right. It's about, so I think you have this quote from Nietzsche in the book. Um, I seem to remember, and uh, which is, no, it's not Nietzsche. Is it? Is it Frankel who said this? Um, or f- it can't have been Freud, but um, we're pushed by drives, but we're pulled by meaning. So the D realm is a kind of push realm. You're shoved from behind towards the thing, and the the B realm is a kind is a pull realm. The thing is pulling you to it. So you're I like looking at things. That. You're but, sort of appreciating mm. things for themselves rather than trying to work out what they can do for you. You're yes. letting them attract you rather than trying to pull and get things out of them. Yes, but uh, yes, and <laughs> uh, role may. I think that you're, 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 that quote actually came from Roland May, and he was referring to something else. He was referring to the distinction between uh, eros and um, and lust. It was definitely meaning. It was he was talking about meaning? I also have that quote in the uh, in the uh, B uh, the B love and B sex sections of my book uh, as a Roland May quote as well. So I, I I think it can apply to meaning as well as arrows. Mm. So let's take let's take love as an example. One thing is that you you talked about that you imply quite often that the B realm is rather difficult to access um, until we get to the end of the book, um, which maybe we'll talk about at the end of this podcast. But you you talk you speak at least and describe it as if it's something quite elusive um, and quite hard for the ordinary person to access. And I think there's a very good counterexample for the B-love. Um, and I'm also taking this from from Darren Brown, whose um, who's, who's book Happy has been very influential to me. I've read it several times. And he he says that Imagine that uh, you're, you've discovered that you're going to die tomorrow. 
so that is that is a um, that is a horrible thing. It's going to turn your life upside down. It's going to be frightening and upsetting and whatever else. But you will accept it. Um, now imagine that um, you're going to just live an, a normal number of years, but um, five years after your death, a meteor is going to strike the Earth and completely eradicate all life from the planet. Um, as in the sci-fi series Salvation, which I highly recommend, if anybody wants to wants to see how that situation would p theoretically play out, or or there's or you know there's a kind of Children of Time style, style scenario, the P. D. James novel in which um, the human race becomes sterile, so no more. Oh, Everybody who's on the planet at the moment will live out their normal life span, but no more children will be born. Um, this will be the last generation. And to most people, both those scenarios are really terrifying and much bleaker and more terrifying than the thought of their own death. And that seems to me like a testimony to our capacity for be love. Oh, yes. I love that. It's our capacity. Oh, you just, I got a chill. You nailed the fact that the need for transcendence is there. It's, it, it, it's, it's not the same thing as the need for self-actualization. We do have a need for transcendence. We have a need for our, our being to exist after our death. We know we're going to die someday. It's, quite a horrible thought to think that um, just five years after we die, um, everything we've done in our lives will no longer, will cease to have any meaning in the world. But I don't know that it's even our lives. So I, I don't think it really is that personal. I don't think it's about yeah, you know, the fact saying. that all my friends will be killed by the meteor. Let's imagine all my friends, relatives, everybody who ever read my read my books or has been on the podcast or who I've interacted with any in any way has all died and at that point one day after they're all gone the meteor strikes um I mean I think that I I I just find that that I find that prospect incredibly chilling yeah. um and I think it's for similar reasons that I, I think uh, I'm talking about sci-fi a lot in this podcast for some reason, but I think it's for yeah. similar reasons that so many people love sci-fi, that we want to, uh, we hope that there is some someone else out there. We hope that there's another, there's another species of sentience out mm. there. And I find it, I f um, when I read, I, I read the book Rare Earth, Mm. Um, I'll put I'll put references to everything in in the show notes later, which is about um, is is kind of a, a debunking of the Drake equation, and it's all about how unlikely it is that there is any other life or at least any life that will ever contact us at any point in the future, and they're looking kind of thousands and millions of years into the future, so definitely. I won't be around then or anybody I knew or anybody who could possibly have even the slightest connection with me. Um, and 
I just, I was so deeply depressed after reading that book. And what what else is that except some kind of, what is provoking those feelings except some kind of larger, some sort of connection to something larger? I think you're right. I There's a phrase Mazo talks about that, that, that really resonated with my soul. He talked about how transcenders... Um, tend to have a, have a bit of cosmic sadness. It sounds like you had some cosmic sadness going on over there, my friend. Yeah, but I think this is very common, you see. What I'm arguing with is the idea that there are there is such a thing as the transcender. Um, that we don't we aren't we don't all transcend at some points at least. We don't all have this transcendental, not just capacity, but actual Oh, sure. Actualized, um, transcending. Oh, sure. Each of the needs in my revised hierarchy of needs are things that the point is they are human needs that all of us access those states, but some of us um, are just more regularly motivated by those things than, than others. It's just like personality. Um, it's, it, it, we already talked about how ridiculous it is to say that only extroverts get um, depleted by... Um, uh, or sorry, only introverts get depleted uh, by a lot of talk. A lot of extroverts get exhausted too. It's just different thresholds. And um, when when Maslow was talking about transcenders, I think he was just talking about people who are regularly motivated by those uh, those experiences and values in life. I think that I mean one of the problems is, or one of the paradoxes that I see here of paradoxes it, is that. On the one hand, the transcendent experience makes one feel connected. Yeah. Um, and it's um, it makes you feel connected to a larger whole. That that is the kind of feeling of transcendence. I think that it can be. I mean, it can even be quite sort of um, um, a prosaic sort of transcendence. I think it's, I can never remember which philosopher it is. It's one of the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers. And I want to say it's Hugh Blair, which means it probably isn't Hugh Blair. But I'm going to say it's Hugh Blair. It says that people, um, uh, um, earlier psychologists were trying to uh, define happiness in terms of pleasure versus pain, avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. but he he was observing people who were haymaking, which is a very strenuous activity, and also rowing, which is likewise, like rowing in a team boat like we did at Cambridge, which is likewise this very strenuous activity. You went to Cambridge? Uh, yes. What college uh, were you in? Jesus. I was in King's. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> when we were you there? We could have partied together. <laughs> uh, two th when, uh, 2001, 2005, and uh, 2001, 2005, and 2007. Uh, after my time. Oh. Um, but uh, he observed these people doing these very strenuous activities, and they would be smiling and laughing and singing. Mm. Um, people who were making hay were often whistling or humming. They mm. were happy even though the actual experience, if you zeroed in on the physical experiences, was pain. Haymaking is not fun. Um, but it's 
And he put that down to feeling like forgetting about yourself and feeling like part of this larger endeavor. And the larger endeavor needn't be kind of finding God in the universe, but just getting together your bales of hay. What is the bales, getting your bales of hay? uh, How do you interpret that? I think that maybe transcendence can be more daily and more and less kind of, I, I think this kind of getting out of yourself and feeling a connection to something outside yourself, being motivate, intrinsically motivated by something outside yourself, can be maybe more prosaic than the sorts of peak experiences that you are describing and Maslow is describing. <laughs> well, that's the, the, that's the, as you know, that's the twist ending of the book. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's sort of the twist ending. I guess I, I, I shouldn't. I guess I, I. Well, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't reveal. Give reveal at the end of the book. The Maslow dies. Experience. That's a spoiler. <laughs> yes, yes. But I try to, you know, even though we all know that he's he dies, I still wanted to make it poignant at the end, and um, and have us all kind of feel what it, what it really feels like for someone I think that it's just the way he lived his life the last even the last couple of months of his life in this state of beauty uh, and and seeing the miraculous in, in the everyday um, and his 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 pushing of the notion of the plateau experience being a true transcendence uh, I think was beautiful let's talk about the peak experiences and maslow's conception of the peak experiences how does a peak experience for example differ for you from something like uh chick sent me high in flow don't ask me to spell that (laughs) (laughs) well it's amazing enough that you could pronounce it um well it's his name is like chick sent me high it's the thing that sends you high that is the peak experience so it's very easy to remember the pronunciation me high chick sent me high yeah uh that's his first name me high okay so i i've i've obviously thought a lot about that as i was writing the book and i and me high doesn't get a lot of play in my book in, in in this way, in in this regard, I think that the flow literature that's tied to 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 to, to Csikszentmihalyi's writings is very performance based. It's very it's not experience based. Peak experiences are not the same things as peak performances. And I just my book was not about peak performance. Mm. It was about being. Mm. Mm. My book was about. Um, it was tying flow more to openness to experience so the 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 cognitions the altered states of consciousness that one has um that that enable these transcendent emotions and experiences and that was the focus of my book but the peak the performance that makes it sound so robotic whereas actually it's kind of it's peak performance because it it hits that perfect sweet spot between um boredom and stress it's too hard it's stress it's become stressful and if it's too easy it becomes boring so it's this kind of floaty area that is where you feel is i'm gonna have to be disagreeable here a second (laughs) i knew (laughs) it's my turn i I knew that this kind of seductive act that you do is gonna was gonna 
drop at some point. I'm very suspicious of agreeable people. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, wow. That I don't know how to take what you just said. Because <laughs> I, I would like to think it's not an act. Um, uh, um, so what now? And I'm trying to think of what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, now I really am trying to remember what I was going to say. I threw Mas- you. Sorry. You, were you going, did throw me for you a You were going to say, you were going to push back against the idea of the, the peak performance, the definition uh, of peak performance I gave. Or Because, yeah, what was the last thing you said, though? I said it's I mean, like you a can, sweet... You can, edit, you can add, edit out me trying to remember what I was going to say oh, no, once I remember no, it. No, but... I want everybody to know. <laughs> Um, no, it was, it, That's sadistic of you, but um, it's yes, revenge. Um, um, so it's it's just well, like the um, revenge for what? What did I do to you? <laughs> um, for, it's revenge for what you might do in the future. I'm just taking my revenge early. I'm going to assume this is dark humor and <laughs> and uh, not literally. Um, well, tell me what the last thing you, you said, though, and that, that'll prompt it. So I said it's a kind of floaty state, and it's because it's in between in between things that are too easy, so they're boring, and things that are too hard. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> this is where I really, this is, this is where I want to disagree, because I think that uh, that aspect of flow has gotten too much play. Uh, and w- for instance, th- think of so many cases of being in the flow state where that's not the case. Mm. So think about when two human beings are deeply connected through their social, um, d- uh, you know, that beautiful feeling where you're not being self-critical, you're not being socially anxious. There's a great way connection between you and another person and, and time seems to recede in the background. This idea of, well, is challenge max to, you know, in a, all that stuff just doesn't matter in that kind of moment. That doesn't even make sense. It doesn't it to work within that framework. Same with looking at like a beautiful sunset. I've, I've, you know, you can get be in a flow state. You don't, you don't try to tr- think. Well, that sunset's challenging me. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So I really have I've criticized that as being the necessary condition for a flow state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's fair enough. And actually. When I'm thinking of actual performance flow states, because I used to be a dancer, as I think I might have told you. Uh, no, I I taught uh, Argentine tango. Wow, I used to be a break dancer. Ah, wow. Um, so <laughs> that's awesome. So I think you you must be familiar with this as well. There isn't there's there isn't a sense of kind of difficulty at all. It's more like. Um, it's the, it's more like a kind of transparency. It's like what is mm. inside you can just get out without any bar. There's no barriers to letting the thing, the feeling that is inside out into expression. That's, that's the flow state. Um, and you don't have to be, it, it doesn't really correlate with difficulty in that sense. That's, that's right. That's right. Yes. So then we are we're, then we're agreeing. Yes, we're we're agreeing on that. Well, that's no fun. Um, but the so the irony is that the peak experience, not flow state, but the kind of more spiritual peak experience, um, yeah, where you feel at one with the universe and things. That kind of 
the kind of experience that I can only have in, in an Agiari, <laughs> actually, um, that in the Zoroastrian fire temple, um, it's that experience. I mean, ironically, it's a feeling of connection, but it's the experience is one that you have alone, generally. Um, and so I think that it's, I kind of question how how valuable it is. It's valuable to you, but it's not directly shared. And I want to suggest against this this kind of flow experience the the George Eliot thing, where she George Eliot says that our purpose in mm. life, um, how does she put it? You probably know this quotation, right? From Middlemarch. She says, um, Water, uh, it's something like, what are we here for if not to make life less, if not to make life less difficult for each other? Mm, what do we live for if it is not to make life less difficult to each other? I don't know. Sorry, I painted, painted myself into a corner here. I don't know where I'm going with this. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. So tell me about the end of the, the book, Maslow's Discoveries at the end sure yeah the end of the i don't want to give it all away but the end because it's it, this book i want it to be an experience for people who read it like i i going through it in sequential order and and seeing how the different parts of the sailboat work together and 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 just how i don't want a I don't argue that we should just shoot for uh, transcendence without working on ourselves and working on other aspects of our needs. I don't want people to just jump to the last chapter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, um, should we keep? But, should we keep it mysterious then? <laughs> we could. We could do. Uh, you know, I, I did talk a little bit about the Maslow's realization about the Plateau experience and how the. Uh, the, the the most wondrous moments of transcendence don't necessarily come from these peak experiences, from these euphoric sort of uh, the melodramatic, uh, hypomanic moments of our lives. They can come from the seemingly banal. They can come from from a sm just a smile of a loved one or a beautiful flower or uh you know he has all these exercises he came up with which i i was so excited i was able to find them and uh and and, and collect them tech tips and techniques for living in the b realm mm. uh i really I, I try i try as much as i can to to live in the b realm when i'm feeling really uh demotivated and of course i you know of course i i i, I get that way and as as all of us do, and you mean you're not I, you're not a sage after writing this book <laughs> and reading all the Maslow things. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not a guru, as I said earlier. Maybe I am a sage. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I'm not. I don't claim to be any of these anything other than I am really. Um, but I I really try to at least practice these principles myself, and and when I find myself in this this d realm of motivation 
I, I try to just sit back, maybe meditate or, or um, go nature or seek out beauty, seek out meaning. You, you, you need, those are the moments when you need to seek out things that, that'll, that'll snap you out of it. And by the way, I, I feel like Twitter is just a demotivated motivation platform. <laughs> it's, it's just a, it's become that way. It seems to me in looking at so many of the conversations and it, it and that these days Twitter is, is quick quick to put me in the D realm, mm. and and I think it's important to to recognize the B realm still exists. The B realm didn't disappear just because you're in the D realm, you know. And I think it's important to to remember that. Am I allowed? I know you're a disagreeable expert, but am, am I still allowed to get inspirational on your podcast? Is that is it? Would that annoy you? <laughs> no. Of course you can get inspiration. Yay! Yay. <laughs> um, I don't know just how disagreeable you are. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I um I like do I have to like not be myself all of a sudden to to please your disagreeableness? <laughs> but um, no, I, please be authentic. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um I I I get I get tears in my eyes talking about this sometimes because I think there's um it, there really is a sense of cosmic sadness here where you can see that we can do better as humans. You can see that even within yourself, you can do better. I have, I have, I have lots of moments right where, where I say, I, I, you know, that wasn't my best. That wasn't that I could do better, and and that's part of being human. It's, human is not this perfectionism thing where like you you slip and you you, you know and then and then 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 your slip reveals that that's who you truly were. <laughs> Some surely maybe that's how you think. No, <laughs> but, no. Why do you think? <laughs> oh, because you, your your joke part. earlier oh, with right. the with with the seduction <laughs> slipped and this podcast you know, is um, very personal. <laughs> <laughs> I feel attacked. Uh, <laughs> you said you feel what? Attacked. You feel what? I feel attacked. <laughs> oh no! Why? <laughs> no, it's okay. seriously. No, no, it's fine. Seriously? But it, no, oh. I'm not a cynic. I'm definitely not a um, cynic. <laughs> good, good. No, I, I definitely don't want you to feel attacked. By, by my gosh, um, but just this higher realm of being is is something that we have all we all have access to with us and and uh, and the great uh, psychologist. Uh, Victor Frankl, you know, pointed that out even within the Holocaust, within the concentration camps. You know, there was this 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 sense of spirit that we could we could bring to the world. I mean, you you have this you have a poetic soul, right? Uh, I feel like you can really resonate with with uh, the complexities of human nature. I hope right? I hope so. I mean, I used to write poetry, of course, literally write mm. poetry. Um, and I was a dancer for many years. Um, mm. I think, um, I mean, I, I do think that our D realm and B realm things are sometimes inextricably entwined. And I'll give an example from me, and maybe you could give an example from yourself as well, but if you want to. Um, but so I was reading your book about, and you, among many other things, um, you talk about attachment styles, and I have yeah. an intensely um, anxious attachment style. Um, so, for example, when I left India after I'd been living in India for a couple of years and I had to leave, 
Yeah. The entire last day when I was leaving and I was saying goodbye to friends, I was crying. Everybody wondered what was wrong with me. I mean, literally for the entire day, I had to just go around my day as usual, crying, doing everything, crying, um, which was, which was, I mean, I just literally couldn't stop crying. I was having a, a, a total, um, a total kind of continual, not a meltdown because I wasn't angry or anything like that. I was just intensely sad. I did not want to leave. Mm. And, but at this, I do wonder how much that is related to, I also really don't suffer from, um, what is the word? It's, it's um, hedonic decline or something. Um, when you get used to something and it doesn't give you as much uh, pleasure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are certain things you never get used to. They always continue to give you pleasure. For example, if you have a dog, your dog is never any less charming. You know, petting your dog is never any less enjoyable. You don't get bored of that. Um, but I really don't have this kind of... Um, I don't tend it's to lunch get... time. Make sure to drink water. <laughs> Alexa, thank you. <laughs> Make sure to drink water. Uh, you bet. Enjoy your morning, Scott. You too, Alexa. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I was talking to my friend, <laughs> Alexa. Okay. Um, so uh, I think that maybe those two things are related. The fact that I have this intense, uh, maybe if I didn't have this intense anxious um, attachment style, I couldn't have the kind of um, that, that, so I would experience more of this kind of hedonic decline of getting bored of things. And, uh, you well, know, that is a fascinating linkage. Um, you know, I was thinking about the Keats poem on Keats' Ode to Melancholy. He says that yeah. uh, no one can truly um, experience um, the person who experiences melancholy is the same person who um, can crush Joy's grape against his palate fine. Whoa, can you say that again? Can you say that again? Actually, let me, one second, I'll, I'll find it and actually read it from, um, illustrates this. It's Ode on Melancholy, actually. I got the title wrong. Sounds like something I would love. Yes, she, she dwells with beauty. Beauty that must die, and joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu, an aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison while the bee mouth sips. I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy, has her sovereign shrine, though seen of none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His wow. soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. So that keeps Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. That's like, that, I love it. I, I'm like, give me chills again. <laughs> can you, uh, can you, uh, would you mind emailing that to me like ASAP? Yes, sure. I have, a, I have a friend who I need to send that to like right now. Yeah, I know she would love it. Okay. And yeah. The previous guest on the guest I just spoke to on this podcast, Liam Kofi Liam Kofi Bright, philosopher okay. Liam Kofi Bright, and we talked about his work a lot, but for about an hour we talked about how why he hates himself. 
he genuinely hates himself and he's always self-deprecating and it's meant seriously it's not a joke it's not a fishing for compliments mm. um and i think that liam ended up convincing me that i don't want him to hate himself any less because then he would be a different person perhaps he wouldn't be the person mm. whom i i love ironically um so wow i wonder if you have an example of that from your own personality you want to share or feelings about that idea oh wow that that's such an interesting idea that yeah we we, we do before answering your question i'm not sidestepping your sidestepping your question i'm just processing what you just said because it's it's so interesting to think through that we can the, the very things that may seem like uh, a negative quirk in ourself is uh, is really an essential part of ourself. Uh, this this deeply resonates with my interest in twice exceptional children um, work that I do on with kids who are gift intellectually and creatively gifted but have a learning disability or some aspect of themselves that a school system says looks at them as broken. Um, and and I've tried to show that actually some of those things are as actually what makes them gifted. So anyway, you, you just got me thinking a lot about that. Now, me personally, so is there anything like that with me personally? Um, well, I, I'm quirky uh, and and a bit weird. And I've, I've, I've owned it now, though. I mean, I've, as a kid, my quirkiness was viewed through the lens of my learning disability. But as an adult, I've, I find that I just... Do you have a learning disability? Well, I grew up with one. Um, I was essentially deaf the first couple of years of my life. I had a auditory learning disability that made it difficult. I had a lot of fluid in my ears. I was born with a lot of fluid. So I, I, um, it took me a while before I could process auditory input in real time. So actually, I was in special education as a kid. So uh, anyway, it's a long story, <laughs> but but... I will say as an adult, I've learned to reframe a lot of this as, and this is why I fight for the neurodiversity movement in general, is that a lot of aspects of neurodiversity, society treats those individuals as something's wrong with them, uh, especially the autism spectrum. A lot of people in the autism spectrum, they have an aversion to bullshit and they speak their mind and, and then you may have some people being like, you know, oh, well, you know, let's cancel them. <laughs> and it's like, no, like, why don't we appreciate that there's this the level of diversity that's not skin deep? You know what I mean? That's, that's, uh, goes to the brain level. That's a level of diversity that I, that I love appreciating. Do you know what I mean? Mm, mm, yeah. So how has your weirdness helped you? Yeah, it may, maybe not in all contexts, but in these kinds of nerdy <laughs> contexts like I'm having today, I hope it's helpful. I find with my fellow uh, quirky nerds that, you know, we it, it's, it's a great connection. It's a great sense of flow that, that, that can operate. But certainly not all contexts. I mo most of my day just walking around in my normal human existence, I, I can feel quite awkward. But I find yeah, that's why I love doing my podcast. You know, I love 
I love my podcast and and the the opportunity for it uh, to to just um, to to seek out interesting people and and dive into their lives and their thoughts for an hour is very exciting. I imagine this is why you enjoy doing what you do too. You know, we can kind of turn turn what uh, maybe we even were bullied for as a child, turn it into an advantage as an adult. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I I I think that's often the case. Um, I think I was thinking more of things that actually make you unhappy about yourself, oh. but ha- but maybe the weirdness and nerdiness does. I don't know. Well, how about because um, I'm starving right now and I want to have lunch. <laughs> how yes. it's, it's how about <laughs> I think about know. that and we do a to be continued dot dot. This is what this is what Sam Harris did at the end. Of my my he said to be continued. So I'm going to pull Sam Harris. How about we do a to be continued and let me think about it. Uh, there, oh, there, there there's certainly no shortage of things about myself as well that uh, I um I I don't. I don't, I don't necessarily love about myself. Um, so I'll, but I'll think about it, you know, um, uh, the thing that, that pops into my head immediately is, um, is, is my, uh, sometimes my anxieties, um, override my exploration drive. And then I try to work really hard on, on, uh, on focusing more on the exploration drive, but I'll look, I'll think about it. And, uh, thanks for, thanks for the great, the great questions. Is there anything you're dying to say that I haven't allowed you to say? I'm not. No, I don't think so. I um, appreciate the uh, opportunity to come on your show and talk about my my work, and um, and I appreciate you uh, keep being as real and as thoughtful and soulful as you are. So, so no, <laughs> I can't think of anything. <laughs> uh, well, I hope it was a pleasant reasonably pleasant experience and thank you so much it was thank Thank you you. scott thank you (laughs) have a wonderful week everyone You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.